conductive way And you were so electric I had no say when you came so near And just passed right through me Hey everyone, welcome to Geekdom is Back, as is Merjani Rawls. Today we're talking all about Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. And if you haven't seen this for whatever reason, please stop this and go do that immediately. Because it is definitely something that I think changes the landscape for animated movies. And it's not very often that something like this comes along. So Merjani... First, how are you doing today? Pretty good. It's uh, it's almost Thanksgiving. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I think by the time like people hear this, it, it will you would have already eaten. You would already had your uh, Thanksgiving and do sleep or nap, and you've probably already <laughs> got your uh, Black Friday shopping on. But uh, yes. I'm good. I'm good. And second, how many times did you go see Spider Man into the Spider Verse in theaters? Because I feel like this is a movie that people went to go see more than once in the theater. I unfortunately did not get to see it more than once in the theater, but I did at least get to see it in theaters. Well, I'm not even gonna lie to you. I've seen it. I saw it only once. Okay. Um, I watched it a bunch when it was on Netflix, and then when it came out to like uh, digital and DVD, like I watched it a bunch then. But um, when I went to go see it in my AMC, it was pretty packed. So, yeah, you know, like this movie really caught on with with people here in New Jersey. But. Yeah, I think I just went to see it at an odd time. Like they had a five o'clock showing on Thursday or something. So not quite everyone was off of work and able to get to the theater just yet. So my showing wasn't actually that full. But I think the 7, 730 showing was packed after that. So I kind of went at a good time because I got the Spider-Verse cards that they were handing out at AMC and they hadn't run out yet. So that's always a plus to get the little fun promo materials. But this movie has so much to talk about. So I want to jump right in and talk about the stacked cast because I was blown away by how many recognizable names they got for this. And Obviously, you have Shamik Moore as Miles Morales, and he's not necessarily super well-known. He's been in a few things. He was in Dope, The Get Down. So he was sort of hitting his stride when he got into the Spider-Verse. And then, obviously, there is going to be a sequel on the way, which we'll talk about a little more later. But in addition to Shamik, you have Jake Johnson, Haley Steinfeld, Mahershala Ali, Brian Tyree Henry, Lily Tomlin, Luna Lauren Velez, Zoe Kravitz, John Mulaney, Kamiko Glenn, Nicholas Cage, Katherine Hahn, Leah Shriver, and Chris Pine. <laughs> and, you know, that is just such a long list of names that people will probably recognize from various things. You know, maybe some aren't as recognizable, but I think for the most part, anyone who is watching this movie, at least for the adults, they'll be like, oh, yeah, I recognize Nicolas Cage's voice anywhere. <laughs> well, like, for instance, like, for, like, Lee Schreiber, when he's, like, voicing Kingpin, like, I know it's kind of hard in kind of animated movies to kind of convey or embody, like, a character like that, and he totally did that. Like, yeah. Uh, Catherine Hahn, when he kind of flipped it on his head, and Doc Ock is, like, you know, Olivia Octavius. Yeah. I thought that was pretty cool. Um... And especially, like, just, like, the interactions between Miles and, you know, Jefferson, his dad. 
like little things like that. Like they're the one thing that's good about Spider-Verse is basically the details and kind of like the infliction of everybody's voices and how they get into the character, you know, kind of joined with how awesome the animation is. And it works. It just it's a movie that kind of just works on all cylinders. Yeah, plus the small details between Peter Parker, played by Chris Pine, who dies at the beginning, and Peter B. Parker, voiced by Jake Johnson, who comes into the picture and, you know, he's like, oh, this Peter had blonde hair, you know, and, you know, didn't have a beer gut or anything like that. So you have just these details at such a small, minute level that make the experience what it is. And, you know, I think this was probably my favorite movie of 2018, if not close up there. I know I did a film episode covering a lot of the 2018 movies, so I'll link to that in this as well. But I was just so impressed with how this cast meshed together, too, because one of the things I was worried about is that they were going to put so many characters in this to where it would be very hard for them to make them all fit. You know, we've seen that in things like Spider-Man 3, where it doesn't quite work out because they're trying to pack so much in, but you even have villains like Green Goblin, Scorpion, and Tombstone in this, but they don't need to have these big roles in order for their appearances to make sense. You know, they're all working in conjunction with Kingpin. So I think they just really pulled off the balance of the characters really well throughout this, too. Well, like... For instance, take a look at Spider-Man 3. So you had this central storyline between uh, Peter Parker and Mary Jane Watson. Okay, so you had Mary Jane kind of, her luck is running down, and then Peter's is going up. And Peter is so, I guess, nonchalant and basically stuck up about his own thing that he ignores Mary Jane. So you kind of interweave Sandman and then kind of like Green Goblin or the new Green Goblin in there. But then they kind of just threw Venom in there. Just just kind of threw him yeah. in there. And, and like, uh, that didn't work. And then you had The Amazing Spider-Man 2, where, again, you had a love story that kind of worked with, you know, Gwen Stacy and Peter Parker that you've already went into in the last movie. And then you try to throw the Sinister Six in there. So, like, it was like... Too much too soon, but with the the good thing about this is the central character is Miles Morales. And yeah. then there's like a secondary thing with Peter Parker. And their stories kind of build off everything else. You know what I mean? Like it Yeah. It it doesn't like Miles's orbit doesn't really destroy everything else. It pulls it it, it basically pulls everybody in. And you feel for each of the characters, even though some may have a little bit more screen time than others. It just works. It just, you know what I mean? Like, you see this whole Miles and Peter mentorship, but it's weird because Miles isn't really, he's not one of them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, he, he still has to learn, like, how to be Spider-Man. And then, you know, like, it comes full circle where, you know, Miles is inference on being this character and being something special teaches peter well this other you know dimensional peter 
how to like get his life together. It's just, you know what I mean? Like it's just little threads that all come together in the movie that just works that like, I'm glad that Sony finally figured out. Yeah. Almost all of these characters exist to bolster Miles's story. This is very much about him learning how to be Spider-Man after going through this traumatic event of seeing Spider-Man unmasked and killed by Kingpin by accident. You know, Miles wasn't there on purpose necessarily. He didn't mean to stumble across this, but because he had been bitten by the spider earlier and then comes across this big battle between, you know, that Spider-Man and Prowler, Green Goblin, Fisk... You just have so many moving pieces and all of them come together, the heroes and the villains, to give you a story about Miles, about him learning the ropes. And, you know, you have funny moments that go along with that when he's trying to learn how to use the web slingers, <laughs> the web shooters. And Peter B. Parker's kind of just like, you got to do this. You got to aim with your hips and you will get it. <laughs> he's not very good at teaching Miles, which I think makes it all that more triumphant in the end for Miles that, you know, he's really only had two days to figure this out. And it's more about him believing in himself than anything else that Peter B. Parker or Gwen Stacy could show him. Well, like, even with, you know, Miles's own family, you know, like uh -huh. the whole Miles and Prowler storyline, where like Miles thinks that his uncle's so cool and, like, he basically uh, inhibits this, you know, the graffiti side of him, like, the artistic side. Um, and then he, like, finds out that, you know, like, his uncle's not really who he thinks he is. Like, mm -hmm. Miles, it, throughout this movie, is not only finding more about himself, but he's redefining on, like, you know, his moral compass. And, like, all right, well, you know, maybe I'm not ready yet, but I have to step up. And it's just, especially... You know, like I've when I went, I went at a like they had like the special Saturday screening, right? And it was packed, it was sold out just to see kind of like a hero who is both half Puerto Rican and half African American. And the fact that, like, you know, they live in Brooklyn and seeing their whole background is inspiring, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, even from like little kids, like, it's all like to see that kind of representation of there. And to see to see who he becomes, and not necessarily always be Peter Parker, um, it was great. I would I would love that they put Miles at the center of it. It's a much better representation of New York as a city, too. I feel like, and they've been getting better at that with the Spider-Man movies over the years. You know, we do see the diversity of New York City in Spider-Man: Homecoming, just between Peter's classmates, you know, the guy who owns the bodega that he goes to or whatever. And with Miles being the central character in this, I feel like it's such an empowering character study as well, because, you know, I imagine when Brian Michael Bendis and Sarah Pacelli came up with this character, they had no idea how far it would go. And to then see this character on the screen and have this character mean so much to so many people. It's just a very exciting thing that Sony has done. And as we all know, Sony has had some highs and lows within the Spider-Man universe in general. And this movie does such a good job of hitting 
the highs and lows of the emotional spectrum for Miles. It's not all about him having a blast learning how to be Spider-Man. You know, he feels betrayed when he finds out who his uncle is and it just breaks his heart and you can see that. And then when Prowler dies, it's even more heartbreaking because Miles wanted to be able to save him. You could tell. That's why he took his mask off. Not only because he didn't want to die by the hands of his uncle, but because he thought he could bring him back. Yeah, I mean, like, you have, of course, you have, you know, Gwen, Gwen Stacy and Penny Parker, too. I, I love that there are two women or, like, two ladies also in the cast as well. Yeah. Um, especially with Gwen kind of, like, helping Miles along, too, because you have... Peter, who's the who's the adult who, who tries to teach him stuff, but he's also kind of reluctant because he's in a bad spot. Like he's divorced out of shape. So he's going on this personal journey to kind of like basically teach Miles how to be Spider-Man. But he also has to remember how to be Spider-Man himself. Yeah. Then you have the Miles and basically thread with his father. You know what I mean? Like they're two different like two different identities. Like his, his father's a cop. So, like, you know, his father basically put him in the academy, and then you you definitely see that, like, what, what was cool about those scenes is that, like, it shows that, you know, Miles is overwhelmed, but, like, it's kind of devoid of color. And then when you have, like, it, the graffiti scenes, like, you know, full of color and everything like that, like, I love that. But as the movie went on and, you know... Miles has the Spider-Man character. It's weird because as he's going through stuff and especially like the scene where, you know, Miles' dad is outside his door and he's, you know, I see the spark in you. They start to get closer together as Miles realizes who he is, which I also thought was a great writing wrinkle there. You know what I mean? Like embrace who you are and you get, you basically find a common thread or you, become closer to the people that you care about. Right. I want to talk a little about the story because we have yet again, more origin stories coming into place here because all of the heroes go through their origin stories. And even at the beginning, it's like, okay, one last time. And they make a jab at the dancing scene in Spider-Man three, which I think livens up the origin story. Yeah. I love that. It's it's so meta. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And they keep it, Nice and short, you know, it's this quick scene or quick montage at the beginning with Chris Pine's Peter Parker. And then, you know, we see Miles's origin throughout the movie. And as someone who is kind of tired of origin stories, I think this one is different because it's a new iteration of Spider-Man. And it's one we haven't seen on the screen up until this point, aside from some of the animated TV shows, which take a different twist on it. Marvel's Spider-Man, which is on Disney XD right now, has a very different method of telling the stories of Peter and Miles because they're the same age, which, as we know from the comics and this movie, is not the case. But then you have the quick origins of Penny Parker, Spider-Man Noir, Spider-Ham, Spider-Gwen, who is known as Spider-Woman on her world, and... Even Peter B. Parker, we get this quick montage of everything he's been going through. And I think that's effective because they don't waste time on it. They just like get to the point and 
you're good. You don't need any more. You're going to learn about these characters as they fight these villains. Yeah, I think that especially the funny way that they do it, like they're poking fun at, you know, Spider-Man 3 and uh, basically Venom-infused Peter Parker, uh, Spider-Man 2, like all the scenes, and Uncle Ben, like they're basically, like you've seen this Uncle Ben you know, killing or or story a million times before. Uh, I think that with that and basically every origin of basically like Spider-Man Noir and kind of introducing them that way was really, really effective and really showed everybody's different personality from where they were coming from in the Spider-Verse. Story-wise, I feel like they just really knocked this out of the park for an origin because it gives you everything you need Miles is learning along the way, and they aren't lingering too long on it. I think even though that this was a two-hour movie, which is actually pretty long for an animated movie, I've been going back and watching things like Toy Story and some of the other Pixar movies, and, you know, those are closer to an hour and a half, hour and 40 minutes tops, maybe, just because of the process for animation taking so long in general, but the fact that they took their time with this story. It was so well-paced, and it did not feel like a two-hour story, pretty much. And I think that's what makes it work so well. You don't feel the length of, length of time. It's when you get movies where you're like, okay, when is this going to end? How much time do we have left? When you start to get in trouble with your story, because that means people are getting bored and wanting you to hurry the story along to get to a certain point, but... Even re-watching this, I was so impressed with how quickly it went by. I was like, ah, oh, that was two hours? I mean, maybe a little longer because I paused it here and there, but still, it did not feel that long. And in my book, that's always a plus. Yeah, it's basically the commonplace in the movies now where everything kind of lay- runs on the long side, like... If you hear that a movie has a two and a half hour runtime, that's kind of like the norm. You know what I mean? Like uh, Star Wars, uh, The Rise of Skywalker is going to be the longest Star Wars movie ever. Uh, it Chapter Two was almost three hours. Uh, the Irishman that comes out like tomorrow is going to be three and a half hours. You know what I mean? Like so. At least you can pause movie... the Irishman. <laughs> yeah, you can pause that. You know, but um. So for a movie like this that has so many characters and they don't get lost, like they all like have a place, especially with Kingpin and his story of uh, uh, the Collider and basically trying to get his wife back and kind of, you know, having that thread go through and with all the Spider-Men is a triumph because it could have easily got messy. This could have been the third Spider-Man movie that, Sony has done where it just kind of unravels because you're you're trying to interject too many characters and too many plots. But when you have a central character like Miles Morales and like it's easy to kind of build around him. Do you know what I mean? Like they could have yeah. easily went with regular Peter Parker, but I'm so glad that they didn't. They they went with the one that had to be redeemed. And you know what I mean it's choices like that that makes Enter the Spider-Verse uh really work and scenes like you know miles learning to use the web the first time with what's up danger playing like that's one of the greatest to me i think that's one of the greatest not only animated 
scenes, but one of the greatest superhero scenes of all time. It's up there with for me with, you know, Wonder Woman, No Man's Land or, you know, Man of Steel. The first time he like learns to fly. I, I know I'm naming all uh, DC movies, but this is just off the That's top okay. of my head. I'm pretty <laughs> sure. Like, but um, yeah, it's things like that. You know, like scenes like that. It's like the moment where Iron Man is building the suit in the cave. Yeah. You know, it's just iconic moments like that. And the fact that the accompanying soundtrack really sticks with you makes those moments even better. And, you know, I do want to touch on the storyline with Kingpin because I think after having watched the Netflix Daredevil show, I really do like the idea of following that up pretty much with this storyline of him trying to get Vanessa and his kid back. Even if they are from a different dimension, you can tell that he has been through so much emotionally. And don't get me wrong, he's still a horrible, horrible person. But you understand his reasoning behind doing what he's doing even though it is detrimental to so many other people and it's so selfish of him to do that there is this connection that i think works really well with kingpin as far as his family goes you know like when i was watching that you know who it reminded me of um mr freeze i yes. it reminded me of mr freeze and, and basically like you know his wife having this basically incurable disease and he freezes her and he's trying to find you know the cure for her but you know he's trying to kill batman and and there's a lot of collateral dad and damage he's kind of like the sympathetic antagonist like you get why and, and it's also with maybe a you know killmonger and thanos like they're horrible like thanos uh -huh. tried to commit you know genocide and killmonger as well but like their, I would guess their reasoning is you're like, I guess I kind of get it. I wish you didn't try to kill millions. the universe <laughs> or millions and billions of people to get to that. But I understand like why you're trying to, I guess, do what you're trying to do or trying to the ends, trying to get the means. And, and like Kingpin, again, like you said, like he's horrible. Like this dude's a crime lord. And, um, I don't know, but I, I see what you're I, I see what you're saying there. Like he he's trying to get the, the thing that, you know, means most to him back. And but, you know, unfortunately, it means like that dimensions dying and people dying. So, yeah. One other thing I noticed, too, was that with Dr. Octavius, she is sort of in the comic. Doc Ock in that has this sort of protege and I believe her name is Olivia in the comics, if I'm not mistaken, but she's not his daughter or anything. I'm pretty sure. Not 100% sure on that, but I know she's basically his... She's Carol Trainer, I think, in the, in the comic. She's Lady... She might be Lady Octopus. Okay. But I do like that with Doc Ock, her whole story was this was her creation, and obviously Kingpin hired her to create it, but... This was sort of her baby, and you could tell that she is so insanely smart to have come up with something this dangerous, and at the same time, it's like she's a villain, but she's in it for the science, not for the destruction. <laughs> I just like that they chose to put, you know, the woman version of the character in there. Like, 
you have, you know, Olivia as the head scientist. Usually, like, we've already seen Doc Ock in Spider-Man 2. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I like that, like, you have a female villain who's also a mad scientist or evil genius. (laughs) Like, that's pretty cool to me. Like, it's kind of like, I think, Incredibles 2? Yes. Yeah. It's, It's that same thing. Like, I dig that whole, like flipping genders and like going another way with it i think that really worked yeah and the stories that they gave these characters and you know we don't really get any story from green goblin scorpion or tombstone but we don't need it you know green goblin is this massive massive beast who probably is in a way like the hulk before he becomes professor hulk because we've got four movies of that yeah you know what i mean like four movies like it leaked into the reboot like you know what i mean like i was like oh nice green goblin oh oh god i hope he's not like a major character here like sorry you know but yeah i'm like thank thank you that they went with somebody else (laughs) yeah here green goblin is sort of just this big massive presence and the muscle really you don't see Norman Osborn or even Harry Osborn or any of those characters. And I think that helps solidify the presence of the Green Goblin, oddly enough, because you're just like, oh, yeah, of course, Fisk hired him. Why not? You know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But I love that Fisk is Fisk is the muscle. Like he puts a hurting on uh, Miles at the end of the movie and most of the Spider-Men, you know? Like he's Kingpin's yeah. a big impulsive guy. If you watch Daredevil or any like the Netflix, he, you know, like he Vincent D'Onofrio is very imposing in that. And even even the Daredevil movie back when Ben Affleck was there, like big guy, you know, for sure. And just the way that they had all of these stories intertwine worked really nicely because. You don't necessarily know right off the bat that there's a connection between Doc Ock and Kingpin until Kingpin shows up at Alchemax when they're getting ready to steal information off of Olivia's computer. And you have this moment where Miles is like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, you know, he's like, I think we're in over our heads. And you have Peter B. Parker and Doc Ock going at each other while Miles turns invisible and is just carrying this giant computer around and he bumps into Gwen Stacy, who somehow got there earlier than everyone else. She like came to the dimension and went back in time a week, which is how we get that interaction with her. And they don't totally explain that, but I'm willing to let it slide because I think what they're doing with Gwen Stacy and Miles Morales is good enough for me to just kind of let that slide a little. And plus, you know, these are alternate dimensions. We don't really know what's going on with this machine completely because it is so insanely huge and destructive that maybe time travel is possible with it too. Well, I mean, she's kind of always been there, you know, like she was in miles as it happens to be a miles in his class. If she's a uh, Gwenda, you know what I mean? Like she takes that alias there. Um, that I mean, that was okay okay with me. I'm glad that they didn't make Miles and Gwen Stacy like love interest. I, I like that they kept them as friends. Maybe maybe they end up doing that, you know, down the road. But like I like that like they let Gwen Gwen Stacy kind of like be 
more of a uh, like a I don't want to say big sister, but like more like a uh, like a mentor to him to kind of teach him how to be Spider-Man. Yeah. And like with Miles's personal journey to be Spider-Man, he kind of had to let go. Like he had to like he's so like in the beginning of the movie, he's so kind of like tight and like nervous and you know what I mean like even with you know them escaping out of Alchemex and stuff like that it's basically like on the job training right so it, even then he's you know kind of iffy and I, I really like that they showed that you know Miles is struggling and then there comes a point where like they had like in his room was like uh, do uh, I forgot what the what does Peter say? Like the Venom Punch is something like do that on command and something yeah. like that. And he couldn't do it. Right. And like, you know, he asked him and he basically was like, you know, when would I know I'm ready? And then, you know, Peter says the line, you know, it's just the leap of faith. Like that's all it is. So basically being a hero, like the, the story being a hero is just like letting go and like, kind of like accepting that there is going to be fear. There is going to be, um, basically danger and and things like that pun intended but um you know miles had to let go and just kind of be himself and i like that i like the fact that like i didn't like it was really sad when the prowler when prowler died you know what i mean but it showed you mm -hmm. that like miles had to step up because like dude this is gonna affect your family <laughs> you know what i mean yeah like, <laughs> yeah you I mean you just lost the family member because of you know him going the other way and being in the Fortress for Fitz. So it's literally this life or death situation for millions of people in New York City, not just Brooklyn. So he knows that he has the power to do something about it. He just has to figure out how to hone that power very quickly, which he does. And I'm not even mad about how quickly it happens because you could see him trying over and over again earlier in the film. And then he just starts to believe in himself and it comes a lot easier in that moment. And he has this style that, you know, Peter never really had necessarily. And I really love how well that shows through in the animation. And do you have anything else that you want to discuss about the story? Because I definitely want to talk about the animation style for this. I, I mean, like, obviously like this is one of the best stories that i've seen in like i said in superhero movies like it was like other than homecoming and then like you had uh spider-man far from home this year obviously and maybe bumblebee which i was really high on which like unfortunately a lot of people didn't see last year which i was kind of sad on uh i've really like i've really dug it i've seen it more than once usually i don't really like it's it's hard for me to like watch movies more than like I think I've seen Civil War more than once, Winter Soldier more than once. Like I've obviously seen DC movies more than once, but like this movie I could really just watch and be like, all right, man, like this is what I I love this this scene. Like like I said, like watching like the What's Up Danger scene, you get goosebumps, you know. Like it's just like wow, like they've really pulled that off. Yeah, and going to the animation style, just what they accomplished with that is amazing as well, because you have Penny Parker, who is done more in this 
anime style. You have Spider-Man Noir who lives in this black and white world because he's from the 30s. And the way they were able to blend all of these characters together, and obviously you have Spider-Ham who is so drastically different from everyone else because he's literally a pig. They definitely take sort of that Looney Tunes kind of quirky pig route with his character and he even says the line that's all folks at the end and they're like can you do that can you legally say that it's just they're having so much fun with it while setting the bar so high for animation movies and they're doing something so drastically different that it's instantly impressive and this is a true comic book movie in the sense that you're getting you know the pow and bang popping up on the screen and the way they show the spider sense with just you know these squiggly lines coming off of their heads is so fun and so true to what a comic book is i think that having the characters in these various different styles just gives you these this sense that they're all unique individuals yeah, I mean, I, I think that Lord Miller said that, like, they wanted the film to f feel like you were, like, inside a comic book. And I definitely felt like it, it was that. Um, I remember reading something that said Imageworks had, like, something up to 177 animators, which is, like, the biggest assembled team that they had for film. And it shows because yeah. every little single detail from you know, the glass was lifting off Miles's like fingers and like the spidey sense and like even the scenes with the collider with all the with the colors and everything like that, like the textures and everything felt so crazy. Mm -hmm. The motion blur, like it literally was like me basically going inside a comic book like I'm like in Nightmare on Elm Street, but not not dying or anything like that and basically watching what was going on you know what i mean like even the t even new york it felt like you were walking around new york like it was crazy you know like yeah um not miles drawing uh his room that felt like unique there was so much care done to every single frame of this movie where like i'm like wow like how long did this take you know what I mean? Like, how long, like, the attention to detail, like, I don't know. Like, I know they're doing a sequel and stuff like that, but, like, it raised the bar for basically animated movies all around. Exactly. There are two things that I'm definitely going to link to in the show notes for anyone who is interested. And Polygon had this interview with Patrick O'Keefe, who was one of the film's two art directors. And it's all about how the unique art style meant they kind of had to make five movies just to get to this one finished product. And the other thing I'm going to link to is the art of the movie book, which I bought. I haven't read through it, but I flipped through it. And just the concept art and diving into all of the things that went into making this movie what it is, that book is definitely a great resource if you really want to dive into all of those details and you know one day i will have more time to actually read it instead of just flipping through it and being in <laughs> awe of all of the art <laughs> <laughs> i was walking through a barnes and noble one uh yesterday and i saw it and i was like should i buy this? should i buy this like yes 100 percent. yes you should have if you did not <laughs> well, this is coming from uh, ladies and gentlemen this is coming from a lady who is basically like 
is going to have a card catalog soon for how many books you, which is awesome. But like, yeah, like for books that I might actually like <laughs> ask her to borrow. <laughs> I'm just going to become my own library, guys. It's fine. It's not a problem at all. <laughs> <laughs> Can we talk about how great Sunflower is? Yes. That song is amazing. Okay. It's up for a Grammy. Miles is singing it in the beginning of the movie. It's unrealistically catchy. Like, great. Great movie. Like, you know, Sway Lee and Post Malone. Good song. Good song. Still playing it today. Matter of fact, I, I heard it uh, this morning and on the radio. I was like, you know what? Great song. It's just... It, it, <laughs> I was like... Miles is singing it, and I'm like, all right, cool, cool. Um, and then I was, like, looking at, like, what the song was about, and I'm like, I... I mean, like... Um... But like I said, like, I planned to sing it. Like, we were... Like, I was talking with Deanna, and I was like, you know, maybe I should sing it on the podcast. Uh, my voice is is terrible, uh, so I'm going to ask everybody to go to Apple Music or Spotify <laughs> to just listen to it, because I don't want your ears to bleed, you know? The soundtrack as a whole, too, really just felt like it represented all of the music that someone in Miles's situation would be listening to. You know, he's from Brooklyn, but he's going to school. I'm not 100% sure the school's in Brooklyn. It seems like it's quite a ways away because he stays there during the week and then comes home on the weekends. So he's taken away from his home, you know, five out of seven days a week. And it just feels like music is his way of coping. And that shines through especially when he's in his room listening to music and his dad's yelling at him to get ready for school. It's like, that is such a teenage thing. It fits in so well with the movie. And what I love is when the music does not distract from the scenes, but instead makes them better. And you have times where, you know, you'll get a soundtrack, even if it's just, you know, like instrumental soundtracks, scores basically. And you have some moments where you're just like, wow, that music was so obvious. <laughs> like, you know, it just takes you out of the scene for a moment because you have to adjust to what you're seeing and what you're listening to. But with this, it just all flowed so well to where you were like, yep, okay, this is a few days in Miles's life. That's easy to believe. Yeah, shout out to Daniel Pemberton, who did like, who who did the composing on this uh on this movie he's also done like oceans eight the man from uncle i think steve jobs he's gonna do birds of prey uh he uses uh dj cutting techniques in this movie which was pretty cool uh he also does a whole like concurring theme with what's up danger throughout the movie and utilizes that as well especially when uh I think at the end when the collider where like Miles tells everybody like I got this get out of there and then like there's the whole, whole thing where he's holding on to Peter Parker and lets him go and you hear like the orchestral version of What's Up Danger play and like he, he does a really good job. Yeah and we can't move on without talking about A Very Spidey Christmas because you have some key moments where you got Spider-Man singing some Christmas songs and it just adds to the mood so well. You're like, yep, 
This is some comic relief right here, and I love it. The movie, well, the movie's funny. Like, there's some yeah. funny-ass moments in this movie. Like, the whole, you know, Miles' dad, the first day of school, like, you know, he, he stops and he goes over the intercom. It's like, say it. There's something like that. He's like, I love you, dad. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And uh, when in the roommate with all the spider people uh, crawling on on the ceiling, trying to like stay stay hidden, and like him passing out, like it, it's just things like that. Like the movie is kind of heavy on themes, but it also interjects humor. Like, and I'm pretty sure like everybody's seen the meme where you know Peter's thinking, and then Miles is kind of like thinking as well like just like little moments like that like lord and miller and basically like pa, bob persicelli and it, they just did a really good job in kind of like making you laugh and like kind of infusing these emotional moments as well yeah like i mentioned earlier they perfectly capture the highs and lows on the emotional spectrum and they know when to punch in those funny moments to either bolster a scene or just give you a moment to breathe because everything else that's going on is very serious. And I know we haven't talked a lot about Aunt May, but I think this is one movie where that character in particular plays such a different role than she usually does. It was actually really refreshing because Aunt May has been part of the Spider-Man world since day one pretty much granted she keeps getting younger i do like that they aged her up more in this compared to marissa tomei's aunt may just because it felt a little more realistic because in the comics initially she always felt way too old she felt more like grandmother age not aunt age because i was like wow was peter's dad that old when he was in high school in college you know because Aunt May is his father's sister. She takes him in, so on and so forth. Uncle Ben thing happens. But in this, Aunt May is sort of just like, oh, okay, this is another Peter from another dimension. It's about time you showed up. Let's go kick some butt. Yeah, she's voiced by the great Lily Tomlin. And and Lily kind of takes on the role, like especially when uh, they bring the fight to her house. She's like, can, can you please take this outside, please? <laughs> yeah, it's such an Aunt May moment after she's shown them Peter's workspace, basically, and she gets emotional seeing Peter B. Parker because she knows about everything that's going on. She knows there are other Peters out there. She knows there are other Spider-Men, Spider-Women, and it's just so nice to have Aunt May be in on it all. You know, we see that in Spider-Man Far From Home. You know, she finds out by accident, of course, <laughs> in Homecoming. But to have Aunt May be more of a participant in Peter's life, I always think is a good move instead of having Peter just hold everything in. Because we've seen time and time again, and we see it in this with Peter B. Parker, things with Mary Jane or Gwen Stacy don't always work out for Peter. So he has to have someone to lean on consistently and aunt may has always just felt like the obvious option for that so i love the connection that she has with peter in this her own peter and the peter from the other dimension even though we don't see her and her peter together well yeah like it just says that you know the character of aunt may 
is basically like uniform and she's like a connecting thread to not only that Peter, but the other people. If you're not going to have the younger blonde hair, Peter, who's kind of like this heroic, you know, like uh, do gooder, like all encompassing Spider-Man. It's good to have Aunt May who basically knows everything. She knows about the gadgets. She, you know what I mean? She has the place where like, all the Spidey suits, and she even gives Miles, like, the web-slingers. You know what I mean? Like, she's like, you know what I mean? Like, make sure these fit. It's, you need an Alfred-type character, you know? Like, you need, like, somebody who, like, knows a little bit of everything to help the heroes along, and I like that that they use Lily Tomlin's version of Aunt May to be that. Yeah, and the fact that she made the web-slingers specifically for Miles. She's like, they fit perfectly, don't they? You, you know, and it's like, when does she measure his wrist? Like, what's going on here? And you just accept it as Aunt May has done this for quite some time with Peter now, even though I believe Peter was only 26, they said, when he died. You could tell she had been in on his secret for probably at least a couple years, I would imagine, because, again, this all starts when Peter is in high school, in the comics anyway. Well, I... Think of, like, Sam Raimi Spider-Man, like, Rosemary Harris played it. And then, like, Sally Field, who played in the reboot, you know, she's, Uh you know, they give Peter the advice that he needs to go finish the fight. You know what I mean? Like, here, Aunt May is actually in the thick of it. Like, she knows about the weapons. She, like, is actually giving weapons and guidance as well. Like, I like that she uh, is not only providing moral support. You know what I mean? She's actually like, hey, man, I have web slingers fitted for you to use. Like, you know what I mean? Like, go get them. You know, like, I like that she's a little bit more fiery and for the Spider-Verse than she has been in other movies. Yeah, she's a great presence in this. I do want to get your thoughts on the ending for this movie, because you have this big moment where Miles is able to send everyone home you know him and peter are still kind of going at it as to who is going to press that green button and it turns out neither of them do so you know that was kind of a futile argument because miles just throws fisk at it and he's big enough to hit all the buttons so that was another funny moment but after that you have you know miles dealing with all of these new friends that he made being gone But then you get that final moment where Gwen calls out to him. And I just think it sets up a sequel so well without necessarily needing to lead right into a sequel, if that makes sense. From what they had in development, they were going to do an Enter the Spider-Verse 2 and I think an all-female version of Spider-Verse. I like that it's open-ended because you can either... You can do that and you can either bring the animated versions into the live action films. So like, I think there was a plan at point, maybe because of time constraints that Tom Holland was actually supposed to be involved in this. I think that you could be because of the success of this one. And the fact that there's still more Spider-Man's rogue gallery, rogues gallery is so vast. It's Mm -hmm. only like, it's just like Batman's. Uh, You can go into so much detail. You can, go back into the Spider-Verse. And I think that maybe they are kind of like laying groundwork for that. 
you've seen that kind of touched on a little bit in Endgame. I don't know if Marvel and Sony are going to keep on doing their thing, but they are for the time being. Uh, from what I hear, like they're doing Wanda version leading into like the multiverse thing with Doctor Strange and maybe Spider-Man is uh, involved in that. But you can do, there's so many possibilities that they can do. If Sony doesn't screw it up. Uh, I think that Sony's kind of sees what the potential they has uh, they have, uh, especially with Feige, you know, kind of steering the wheel a little bit. And maybe they see like, hey, you know what? We can build on this. We can do we could do like small animated stuff. Like you can do like a Spider Pig short. Uh, I think they've done. You can do a Spider Man Noir short. You can do uh, maybe a Miles and Gwen Stacy movie. You can do just the movie about like Peter B. Parker and like him get his life back together because he goes home. Yeah. And assumably, like you know, patches things up with that version of Mary Jane Watson. There's so much stuff you can do, and I, I like that they ended it kind of like a, to be continued yeah and the way they ended it you know in the comics gwen and miles travel between dimensions all the time to help each other out they're kind of dating in one of the comic book runs and it's just such a fun story with the two of them that i could definitely see them going that route and doing a gwen and miles movie after the sequel and there are so many possibilities that Honestly, I think I'm more excited about an animated universe for Miles than I am about the live action stuff that Sony's doing. I know you and I have texted many a time about Jared Leto's Morbius. And, you know, it seems like the animation division has a lot more figured out as far as developing characters. It seems like live action, they might do a lot of one-offs. Well, here's the thing. When when I do that to you, uh, I'm usually trolling uh, because I know how you yes. love <laughs> They're going to – the elephant in the room is that the Venom and, and Spider-Man are going to meet up. And I think that like with Sony developing their own universe, Spider-Man is going to be more of a specter and kind of be more involved in, in the background. Like there's – you know, with the new deal, they said there are going to be kind of loose threads where they can yeah. inference the, the MCU, which is pretty cool. Uh, I hope that they build on it, you know, especially with like fans hating that, like, uh, you know, Tom Holland couldn't be in the MCU and he's a great Spider-Man. Uh, but yeah, I, you know, like I'm very interested and intrigued to see where this goes, where this partnership goes, how they kind of wrap up, you know, Spider-Man three and that saga, yeah. Uh, where they even go? Where they go with the animated version? I'm, you know, like, I'm. I guess I'm equally as interested to see like the animated stuff and, and the live action stuff. Uh, you know what I mean? Especially yeah. with the big reveal that happened with, you know, Spider-Man: Far From Home, uh, and where that's gonna go. But uh, I'm seeing. Uh, I'm. I hope they really build on Miles story because it brought in a whole new audience of people like people of color uh women uh like to see that it can be all inclusive it's just not like because we're all just, we're always used to just seeing peter parker peter parker peter parker peter yeah. parker and now we get to see that there's many versions of spider-man which is always a good thing yeah and it's not a knock against peter parker he's had way more backstory so you know there's a lot to tell with that character but at the same time in 2019, or in this case, 2018, you just want to see more than just 
Peter Parker, you know, maybe we'll get Jessica Drew at some point as Spider-Woman, either in live action or the animated series. And she comes in and does her thing, which is very impressive if you've read the comics for Spider-Woman. But we cannot leave without talking about the post credit scene. Did you stick around for that when you watched it? I did not know there was one. Okay. <laughs> but I did see but uh, but I did see it afterwards. Yes, I thought it was funny. Uh like basically the pointing meme of Spider-Man to, to <laughs> 2099 and to 1967 Spider-Man. Yeah. Thought it was really funny. And you have Oscar Isaac voicing Miguel O'Hara who is Spider-Man 2099. So they introduce this character at the very last minute and you're like, "Oh, where is this going to go? You know, is there going to be a moment where they travel into the future and we get Spider-Man 2099 or he comes to the past or, you know, what's going to happen to have this character be a part of the universe and not just have him around for the funny meme moment at the end? Because I can't imagine you get Oscar Isaac to voice that character if that's all it's going to be. Oh, he'll you know, post credit scenes always mean something with Marvel movies. <laughs> he'll definitely be back. He'll he'll be around if, if it's not for a sequel. Like, he'll definitely be... He's definitely going to be involved. For sure. Well, any final thoughts on this, Marjani? I mean, as long as... It, for the duration it's on Netflix, watch it. You know, it's great. I'm sad that it only made, like... 375 million but i'm glad it won an oscar you know what i mean like there's enough demand critically and from fans to see another one it, we need movies like this so like yeah yeah watch the hell out of it i bought it either on voodoo or itunes or something when it dropped down to 10 bucks and yeah, apparently I, there's I an <laughs> alternate dimension version which i was tempted to watch this time but i was a little time constrained before an episode that i had to record yesterday for chat cemetery so i was like all right i'll save that for later so i think you know i'm definitely interested in seeing what that alternate dimension version looks like and there's commentary with the directors if you buy it and I think it frequently goes down to 10 bucks on digital. So, you know, hopefully some of you have bought it. And if you haven't, keep an eye out for that. Like I said, I'm going to put the art book in there in the show notes as well. And overall, this is just such a fantastic movie. I could watch this every day, probably, and not get sick of it. Yeah, with the long list of movies that I have to watch for 2019 like i think if i like take a break and kind of like chilled out like i i could see me you know putting spider-verse on and we gotta wait we gotta we we have a wait because the next one yeah. <laughs> comes out in 2022 it's cool because he'll uh introduce the japanese spider-man series which is which is awesome so um yeah i know lord Mira miller said that like they're returning in some capacity which is good but yeah we got a long wait we'll see I think we'll see the live action one before we see the animated one. Yeah, there are a lot of superhero movies to keep you busy in between this and the next one. So, you know, I think that wraps it up, though. Marjani, thank you so much for coming on to talk about this with me. Yeah, no problem. And before we go, I quickly want to let you all know about our Patreon. You can support the podcast. There's a dollar a month tier and a five dollar a month tier. If you would like to pick a topic, you'd pick the latter. If you want to thank you on the show. Everyone gets that at the dollar a month tier. 
You can find us at Geekdom Pod on Twitter and Welcome to Geekdom on Instagram and Facebook. And as always, thank you all for listening and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day.